Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. I'd like to pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, as well as to the elders past and present, to any First Nations people who are here today. Good morning. It's weird to say good morning at an event like this, but good morning. Uh, my name's Adam Liao, and I'm stunned to be joined on stage by two Australian legends. <laughs> Maggie Beer and Stephanie Alexander truly need no introduction, and it is my absolute pet hate when an interviewer says they need no introduction and then proceeds to introduce <laughs> them anyway. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to do that because while almost everyone in Australia knows each of you individually, I'd like to introduce the two of you together. Maggie Beer and Stephanie Alexander's individual careers have sat alongside each other in harmony for decades. Both the legends of Australian food. Both run successful, era-defining restaurants. Both have received centenary medals, both have been made officers of the Order of Australia. Both are prolific authors, penning nearly 50 books between them and at least one together. Both have used their platforms for extraordinary advocacy. And both have had so much influence on Australian food, it is truly hard to imagine what we'd all be eating today without them. Gosh. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Despite all of these similarities, they are actually, in my approximation, very different people and yet still they are here, lifelong friends. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Maggie Beer and Stephanie Alexander. <laughs> Ma Maggie, Stephanie, I'd like to start kind of before, Maggie before Stephanie, Stephanie before Maggie. And I'll start with you, Maggie. You were a lift operator in a New Zealand department store. <laughs> yes. And uh, you worked in Libya as an assistant for a petroleum executive, yeah. I believe also as a paralegal at one point yes. as well. And that was here in... Uh, for someone who is sort of synonymous with the Barossa Valley and with country cooking, uh, I'd like to know, when did you find that calling? You know, life would be very different. People these days think about what they want to do with their lives and, and you could not have done more things more differently. <laughs> well, I'm... Originally from Sydney, a Westie, Lakemba, Wiley Park. Uh, so a Westie is here. And um, I, I did so many things because I left school at 14 because my parents lost their business and, and um, you know, that happened. But that gave me um, the ability to do almost anything I wanted to while I searched for what I finally did, which was all about food, but only because of Colin, um, my husband, who had this vision... For, to farm pheasants, and he was from South Australia, near the Barossa, and um, uh, Sydney life didn't really appeal, and so we went uh, there, and food became the most natural thing, because he was farming, and no one knew how to cook them, and I could always cook, and it just, just happened. No planning, absolutely no planning, <laughs> one step in front of the other, always with this yearn to learn 
But my, my understanding is that you would never cook professionally before that, other never. than a brief stint with a sailing company in Scotland. <gasps> yes, I got the sack. <laughs> uh, uh, I was uh, spent years um, abroad, as you know, so many young Australians did, and I had a job as a sailing school at Lochern for the season which was 12 weeks, and after six weeks, I'd used all of the pantry. And <laughs> there was nothing left, and they said, I think you should go too. <laughs> so, yes. Stephanie, before food, you were a librarian. And then your first restaurant in Melbourne was called Jamaica House. Correct. It's, it's kind of a sliding doors moment there, because had you not closed that at Open Stephanie's, Australia's national dish might now be jerk chicken. <laughs> <laughs> How did you go from librarian to chef and then from uh, chef to really creating one of the most iconic restaurants in Australian history? Well, I think in my time when I was at school, at those years when you were supposed to be deciding what you were going to do, I knew that I wanted to go to university and I really was looking forward to being a librarian. It hadn't occurred to me or to anybody else that I should cook professionally but I was still cooking for pleasure, and it just wasn't seen as being something that a woman would do. You know, cook, God. No, 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 <laughs> get, yourself a, get yourself a career, get yourself trained for something. So I did become a librarian, and I was very happy, and I worked for 10 years in different sorts of libraries, including the BBC in London. And uh, I think those of you who may have heard of a book of, I wrote called The Cook's Companion will know that <laughs> the A to Z has remained with a, a wonderful principle of organisation for me, which I, which I date back to my years as a librarian. It, it never struck me until this point that that is, only, that is a cookbook that only a librarian could write. That's it. And the cross-referencing, my... <laughs> My uh, lecturer in referencing would be very proud of my cross-referencing. Um, and whilst I was in London working at the BBC, I met my first husband, who was West Indian, and so uh, he didn't really know what he wanted to do. We came back to Australia via the West Indies, had a honeymoon then, and Auntie decided that what he really wanted to do was to import West Indian food this was years before anybody imported anything exotic. Um, well, it wasn't jerk chicken, but it was Aki's okay. in a tin. <laughs> and um, I said to him, well, you can't expect people to just turn up at this little shop and say, I'll have a tin of Aki's. They've got to know what they taste like. So why don't we have a coffee lounge? Because it was the era of coffee lounges, long before BYO restaurants or anything like that. Way back in the dark ages, we're talking since 19, <laughs> 1965, I think. So that's how I started. So I um, devised a menu which I thought showed off these unusual ingredients well. And, um, but, you know, hopelessly, no planning, no money, <laughs> hole in the floor, you know, all those sorts of things. <laughs> And so it didn't last. And it, well, the restaurant lasted, but our relationship fell over. Um, <laughs> oh, God. And I had a, ba a, a three-week-old baby, which wasn't a good idea either mm. at the time. So there was a big hiatus when I went back to being a librarian before the food bug burst out of me again, and I thought, no, I've got to have a restaurant. 
It seems a weird question to follow up with after that, but I can't get out of my head. What are Aggies? I have no idea. Aggie is a wonderful, which is a Aggie rice salt fish is nice. Okay, got, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Thank God. That would have bugged me for the next 49 minutes, so I just had to ask that for my own purposes. I'd like to, to, to put the two of you together, because driving here, I was struck by the fact that I've met each of you individually many times, but I'd actually never seen the two of you together in the same place at the same time. Do, do you remember how you met each other? Yes, I do. Um, it was 1984, and it was the first symposium of gastronomy in Adelaide. Adelaide's often the first, don't you think, Adam? <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> Women's suffrage and all that. Yes. And um, I was in awe of Stephanie. In fact, a little, a little <laughs> respectful, but frightened as well. <laughs> and um, <laughs> because... I had this little uh, little restaurant in, in the Barossa, the pheasant farm. It was the very early days. And um, we got talking. I mean, it was an amazing occasion. It really was. Uh, and I talked about the fact that we, had no, we didn't have the money to travel. And I sort of wanted to experience everything I could in, in countries of the Mediterranean, because that's where my food was. Um, coming from, the Barossa being true Mediterranean climate, and Stephanie said, well, come over, uh, come over to Melbourne and um, see what I do. And so I went over and I was like a fly on the wall but pressed up against the wall <laughs> at Stephanie's when in your absolute, um, f the frenetic pace of that kitchen but yet ordered um, and... There was a French chef there, as well as yourself and many others, and um, that started that started the friendship, really. And we really have had a great friendship. We've yeah. had so many laughs, and we've done some really mad things. <laughs> yes. Not many, we're not, not, we're many not going to talk really about mad ones. <laughs> you said don't talk about anything this oh, yes. really. <laughs> <laughs> no. We've done mad travelling things and... Um, Yes, delightful, uh, fabulous meals and wine and, and whenever just... Whenever we get together, one of us, depending on whether I'm Maggie's guest or she's my guest, we cook for each other yes. and we, we put, pull out the stops, don't we? Yes, we do. We but make sure that it's memorable. <laughs> no matter how simple it is yeah. on my part. But... Um, <laughs> It's, it's always, it's something we've always loved to share and never will stop loving to share. No. Yeah. I said when I introduced the two of you that I thought you were both very different people. Do you agree with that? Oh, yes. We both were? Different people to each other. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I am disorganised, frenetic, um, uh, yes, haphazard. And, and Stephanie... Well, I'm meti anal, meticulous... <laughs> Organised, <laughs> um, but we're both we've got another side. I mean, you're yes. also very generous, very loving, very spontaneous, and hopefully, I'm also thoughtful or some other thing. <laughs> <laughs> Must be something positive. <laughs> so much positive. You know, I said it this morning. I have never stopped learning from you ever, and. Um, uh, so it's it's been, and besides, there's a lot of humour around the table, particularly when Colin's with us. Yes, <laughs> very <Yeah>. cheeky man, <laughs> makes us both laugh. <laughs> You've both had 
phenomenal careers over the last few decades. And while they have been in parallel, they haven't largely overlapped. You know, Maggie, you've staked out South Australia, Stephanie, Victoria. Stephanie's a fine dining chef. Maggie's a rustic country cook. Uh, Stephanie, your food is very French influenced. Maggie's yours very Italian. Stephanie, you've had The Cook's Companion, one of the best cookbooks ever written in Australia, and Maggie, the, the Cook and the Chef, one of the best cooking shows ever made in Australia. Stephanie, you're focusing now on early life for the Kitchen Garden Foundation and Maggie, later life for the Maggie Veer Foundation. Is that by design? Is, is there a turf war happening here? Are you trying to stay <laughs> off each other's turf? <laughs> I, I ask that only half in jest because, you know, when you are two women in a male-dominated field, it can sometimes feel there can be a natural pressure to be in conflict rather than no. in, in harmony, I guess. Do you want to go first? Well, I, I certainly don't think it's ever occurred to me that I should take any notice of not being a man's world. That's just no. nonsense. Um, <clears throat> and I've got two daughters and they absolutely agree with me. So. <laughs> Very bossy girls. Um, <laughs> I don't think that we've ever tried to upstage each other, and I wonder whether it might not be reasonably inevitable that as our careers, well, I can only speak for myself, as I felt that I was unable, rather than tired, of running a restaurant any longer, I was able to pull back and see things in a way that I couldn't while I was working 15, 16 hours a day. And as soon as I pulled back, I could see that this whole issue of how to involve young children in really great food was something I could do something about. And Maggie at that stage was in a different stage of her life. Um, so I don't know whether it, it just sort of happens. I, I, absolutely, it just happens. But one of the things that was so integral to this was the fact that um, I saw the very early days of, of you and the foundation and the work you were doing and um, I supported it and loved what you were doing, but it was when I was made Senior Australian of the Year and I had to speak to a 1,000 CEOs of aged care, that was my tipping point, that I, I saw that the thing that I, was in front of me that I had to do and wanted to do was do something about the food in aged care, you know, the hardest job I've ever tried to do, but I really took... Um, I took guidance without asking you, just seeing what you had done um, gave me a lot of the blueprint for starting um, my, my work with aged care. And I remember us on a stage once when we both had postage stamps um, in Melbourne oh, yes. and we sort of joked about from the cradle to the grave, um, <laughs> but not in any sort of competitive way. But once again, I learned from Stephanie. And so um, it was just the most natural thing and it was right in front of me and I had to do it and wanted to do it and can do it. So, And uh, I think I would have to say probably for both of us that no. being the patron or the, or the whatever you call it, the person at the top, of a not-for-profit organisation is unbelievably difficult. And yeah. when you really feel that you've got this cause that's so obviously important, yeah. you find it so hard to believe that it isn't immediately grasped by yeah. government. And, yeah. you know. That's a silly thing to say, but I mean, you do get out of, I think you get the task out of proportion in your head. 
or I do. Well, it drives you. There is no doubt about that. Mm. Uh, I, I'm loath to ask this question because I don't really want to know the answer, but do you guys ever fight? <laughs> like, has it always been a harmonious friendship or has, has there been conflict? Oh, this, I, I don't think there's conflict, but we get on each other's nerves every now and then because I'm so disorganised and Stephanie's so organised. <laughs> and that's relevant to our experience in the Tuscan adventure yeah. because yeah. we found out within about week one... <laughs> I made Maggie cry. <laughs> I went behind the bay hedge to try and hide it. <laughs> and, I, and I just how dare you, firstly, but also how did you do that? <laughs> well, it was yeah, exactly how dare I. But we soon we worked out that we really needed to divide our group of students in yes. half. And Maggie would take half and I would take half. And so she would do pasta with them for half the morning or whatever it was. And I would bone, have them boning quail or whatever it was. And then the next day, the groups would swap. Yes. yes. And so, but we were, it, it would work better when we were not in the same space. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it did because... Because of my chaos and your organisation, um, it, needed, it needed to be, but it happened naturally too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'd see Maggie pick up a knife and I'd think, she can't, she can't do that with that knife. <laughs> <laughs> and of course she perfectly, she could, but I couldn't. <laughs> so so you, you have had these sort of parallel careers working harmoniously with each other and they've intersected at kind of some incredibly wonderful times and I'm talking specifically about the Tuscan cookbook oh, here. Yes. That came about, I believe you were on holiday together yes, we and were. then you decided you, you needed to come <laughs> back. Maggie, can you tell us a bit about that? Well, it wasn't just needing to come back but how could we afford to? <laughs> <laughs> and it was when we were in Umberta Day in Umbria and um, by the fig tree, I think probably under the fig tree at one of our lunches. Or, well, it was certainly there. And the idea, could we have a cooking school so we could afford to have a holiday with our friends after we did the work and got paid? <laughs> <laughs> and Colin, I might add, said, you're mad. You're both, you're both stupid. You're <laughs> It'll never make a dollar. There's no way you can do it. And so he was very helpful in putting, yeah. oh. putting figures down on the back of an envelope and really pointing out to us that there were a lot of issues that needed to be discussed and yes. solved. Yes. And look, we were, I think I feel very proud of the fact that we actually, we followed some of Colin's advice, <laughs> but we, we made it work. And it was, it was a very successful, and it was also profitable. Yes. You know, and it was a, it was, that was great. But we did, we did bring a network around us, and, and Colin's favourite uh, bit was organising <coughs> the wine through Negotiants, because Negotiants is owned by uh, Robert Hill Smith, and we were uh, grape growers with the Alumba. And so through very close friends, we had how many pallets were delivered? Oh, I can't imagine. I think three pallets of wine, because we had three schools, nine days a time. And each one had 12 persons. So yes. 36 and our staff, 40 people. 40 people. And then we had the house party with our friends for several weeks afterwards. I mean, we did this well. So, but Colin being able to buy wholesale 
uh, through negotiations. Um, we had Sasakaya's Isalea Laney, uh, we had Frescobaldi, we had the most amazing wines. We made a very good stock. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the only ones we had left, uh, 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 left were the Prosecco. Mosca, the Prosecco. <laughs> I spaced out for a minute there because I was just imagining being in a Tuscan farmhouse with Maggie Beer and Stephanie Alexander with 400 bottles of wine (laughs) and wondering what that might end up like. Thankfully, I don't have to wonder so much because obviously, as most would be aware, the Tuscan cookbook has been picked up for film rights. And tomorrow, I believe, actually today, you're having lunch with the script writer for what... Who's in here in, somewhere? In somewhere, the but not in the front row. <laughs> Be uh, the the Thelma and Louise of Australian food in, in movie form. Oh, oh, I like that. Thelma and Louise. It's obviously a rare thing for a cookbook to be turned into a movie. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you hope it might be? Well, we certainly would want it to be more than a cookbook because it really was an incredible yeah. adventure. Yeah. Um, because every group of people was there for 10 days or something? Nine. Nine days. Um, and there were 12 of them, so there were personality clashes. There were interesting people that took an instinctive dislike to people. There were, there were others, there were marriages that fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> they might be in the audience, so there's 800 people here. So we had a lot of personalities to deal with, and I don't think either of us was particularly comfortable. Well, we did, uh, certainly we liked them, but close, close, <laughs> close did. proximity. They wanted us to be there from early in the morning until when they went to bed. Now, that was a big strain because we yeah. also want... So we devised various <laughs> things, and I'll, I'll think of one of them, which is that every now and then yeah. we, we thought that after they'd had the beautiful lesson in the morning, the beautiful long lunch in the garden with lots of wine, encouraged to have a long, lovely long siesta, we thought that encouraged. if they were proper tourists, they would want to go into Siena in the evening yeah. and wander around the piazza no. and... Little, but no, they wanted, they wanted us to entertain them. So we ran away. There was a, <laughs> there was a little shed alongside the swimming pool. And I can't remember, did we actually build a fire or was yes. there a grill in it? No, we had, we had some little fire and we had... Well, it was mainly about being away. I know. We needed space. But I was just wondering whether we lit the fire or yes. whether there was a grill or something. Well, there must have been something that made it very simple for us because neither of us are Girl Scouts. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was the running so, so away. So we would run away with a bottle of wine and uh, some sausages and <laughs> sit in this really rather gorgeous little shed Sometimes with one of our lovely staff. And sometimes in the swimming pool. Oh. Yes. Can't you remember? I remember standing in the swimming pool when we first arrived because it was yes. so hot. It was so hot with a notebook, not a Making, glass of wine. Having a meeting. <laughs> uh, that's true. But it's not that we didn't like the people. No. We really did. And, and <laughs> no, we really did. And, and the thing was, we... We were interpreting the produce to had and being so involved in the Italian experience, not because we were Italian experts, but we wanted to soak it all up. Yeah. And they absolutely did that. 
Um, and so it was wonderful to see them so involved, uh, most of them. See how nice Maggie is? <laughs> <laughs> she didn't say all those things at the time. <laughs> Put your hand up if you were at the Tuscan. <laughs> At least we all know who the scriptwriter is now, because she's sitting out there furiously taking notes about this conversation. Because this is a writers' festival, what was the process of writing the Tuscan Cookbook like? Was it uh, easy for you to work together? Because I can't I imagine writing a cookbook with somebody that was else. I truly can't. Yes, we also yeah. planned quite heavily before. Yeah. We knew that we would have to change our menus yeah. based on what we could get and where yeah. we had to go to get it, etc. And we were quite relaxed about that. Yes. But we had planned uh, nine days of menus, as I say, knowing that there would be changes. Mm -hmm. um, so even while we were doing that, and mostly I came to Maggie's and we did that, we would write little notes to ourselves, yes. you know. In the I'd say something yes. like Quail and Maggie would say, oh, yes, it's got, to be, it's got to be this, that and the other, you know, and I'd be writing down this little, little bit of advice. Um, <laughs> and when it came to actually put... And we both took notes while we yes. were there. Yes. And it is essentially a very photographic book. Yeah. Um, and see, Simon, our photographer, Simon. came for yes. eight or nine days to yeah. the end. And he took such beautiful photos that any words that we hadn't already written would just sort of wrote themselves, don't you think? And I, I do think, but we both kept a diary too. Yeah. We both kept a diary and so little bits interspersed uh, in amongst the, the recipes. But um, yes, Simon Griffith's photographs, but one of the things about these photographs um, is this, this villa... Uh, it was so beautiful, and there were some very um, rare plates on the walls, uh, and <clears throat> not to be touched. And we would take them down quickly. <laughs> They'd be photographed, washed up very, very carefully, and put back up on the wall before um, uh, uh, Vasconetta um, Anna. Anna Tasca. Anna Vasconetta, I think, yes, or something like yes, that. Yes, yes, But yeah. I often, I get actually quite a lot of pleasure about wondering how, she, because she sold the book in her own shop. She had one of those paper-type shops that you yes. see in Florence and so on with beautiful paper and so on. And so she ended up selling copies of this book. Firstly, she thought we were sort of hippies or something. Oh. No, no, she called us more than that. Oh. <laughs> she, she, she thought we were... What? What? <laughs> ball breakers. What? She, ball breakers. Oh, ball. <laughs> she, well, she, she was very alarmed when all this wine arrived before, before us. Before we did. You know, these cases oh. and cases of wine. She's on my God, there's a whole house full of drunks coming. Well, no, and I just, I remember because I, I spoke to Simon Griffiths last week and he said, I, when he arrived, because he only arrived at, um, for the last school for the photography, and so uh, Madame took him around the whole of the villa, and he whispered in her, uh, she whispered in his ear and said, are all Australians as mad as these two? <laughs> <laughs> he told me that last week. I didn't know that. I, I cannot wait to watch this movie, honestly. Can you, can you just hurry up and, and write it? But it was... It was you know, 
Italians are wonderful and have a yeah. great sense of style. Yeah. But there's also another thing that does happen, which is the plastic flowers and yeah. the, the, the plastic over the couch. You oh. know? So we needed to do a bit of a redress of this house when we got there. So one of the people that was, had come to be our staff was a very dear friend who was a costume, theatrical costume yes. designer. So he was in his element and he gathered up the plastic flowers, chucked them in a cupboard, all the plastic, and we had the most exquisite yes. still life arrangements every day that Tony made with grasses, pheasant. <laughs> Me plucking pheasant All the beautiful stuff yes. from the market. And yeah. they had these very yeah. shallow stone sinks that many of you will have seen in old houses in Europe. And so in these stone sinks, we had these just exquisite displays. And as we found that because the food was so ripe when you buy it in Italy, of course, every day the uh, still life started to walk. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I, I we have, learnt a lot. <laughs> I have asked each of you this uh, individually a while back, and you wouldn't be drawn on it at that time, but I wonder whether the peer pressure of a 1,000 people in an auditorium <laughs> might lead you to answer... <coughs> In this movie, who would you like to play yourself? No, no, we can only dream. <laughs> Not being drawn. Anyway, we, we'll have questions later, so if you have suggestions for Nicole Kidman and oh, or, no, no. Uh, Our Naomi Watts, Claudia Carvin, we'll do questions in about 15 minutes' time, so, so please do put some suggestions in. I, I want to talk about cooking a little bit, which I think you know a little bit about. What is it that makes a great cook, Stephanie? Oh, just, they've got to love it. It's got to be because you really want to give pleasure, either to yourself, I live by myself, and I say to myself, this is going to be delicious if I'm cooking for me. <clears throat> I think it's the spirit of generosity and, of course, respect and love for the ingredients. Yes. That's for me. Mm. For me, um, yes, all of that, but... That sense of, of wonder about the season and the scent of food, the smell of food, um, the taste as you cook. Um, I can't imagine cooking without tasting uh, and, and the absolute joy, the joy of it. If you have that joy, you can't imagine. I can't imagine anyone not wanting to cook. It's... Anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is incredible to see how much each of you... Uh, I would say respect the ingredient, but also are very judgmental about them. You know, when I, when I see each of you, you cook, it's like, that's no good, we're going to get rid of that. Or Maggie, when I've been with you in your garden, it's kind of like, oh, this is all terrible, and we'll just rip it out and leave all the good stuff. How, how, how do you teach somebody how to feel that way, how to, how to think that way about food? Well, that's what the Kitchen Garden Foundation is trying to do, and is achieving it, I might add. It's very successful. Um, children, when they first get the, have the experience of planting something in the garden, be it a radish or be it a broad bean, you know, sort of really understand, in many cases for the very first time, it seems so evident to so many of us, but for many kids isn't evident that you put a seed in the ground and something comes up. And um, those children get used to the idea that, their pro that they, have they have created this produce they also know that there's a moment when it's ready to pick 
and a moment when it's not ready to pick. They'll make mistakes and you can guide them and say, no, no, don't pick the strawberry when it's green because it's going to change colour and it's going to be beautifully red if you leave it for a few days. So they can learn those things. And once they've had the experience themselves, I hope, and I think, I think it's a reasonable hope, that those lessons will continue on for the rest of their life because it's associated for those children with the best times, the best times at school, you know, sitting around a table, getting, having, feeling proud and having other children, your friends, say, that's, oh, I don't think I want to eat that, that purple stuff. And the person saying, that made it saying, that's re it's really delicious, try it. And so they, they try the beetroot dip with the yogurt and a bit of crunchy bread or flatbread. And I tell oh, it's really quite nice. Now, that's an incredibly, you know, it's a wonderful thing that happens. And I, so I really do believe you must involve your young people from a very, very young age. And I think that there is nothing more important for breeding food lovers than positive modelling. Well, there's wonder in it, and I have been involved with the Kitchen Garden Foundation a little bit, and I've taught some of the kids at Bondi Public School, and seeing the way that they talk about food, not just with their peers, but then also they take that knowledge home to their families, mm -hmm. and, and quite a lot of us as adults, our, our understanding of food is a little bit divorced from it growing out of the ground and having that, that sense of wonderment yeah. around it. It's a, it's a wonderful program, Stephanie, it really is. Maggie, you have been a an educator as well of people. You know, you teach people how to cook. And, and I want to talk about people a little bit here because I had the, the pleasure of cooking with yourself and Natalie Paul from Beatrix, yeah. uh, who was one of your first apprentices at the, at the farm. Do you want to tell the story about how, how Natalie came to be? It, it, I will say that this was one of my favourite episodes <laughs> of The Cook-Up we've ever filmed because the warmth between Natalie and, and Maggie was, was just extraordinary. Can you tell them how she became to, to be a part of your kitchen? Yes. Um, Natalie Paul was from Sydney and um, I had um, a letter from her uh, and the letter, <laughs> she prefaced it by the fact that she was writing it instead of doing an English exam. <laughs> she was literally sitting she in, was in sitting the exam in hall the English exam and pushed hall. the paper to one side and said, stuff that, and, I'm going to write to Maggie Beer. And, and she wrote to say, could she come down and do some work experience. <laughs> it first started with that. And, um, and, and she did, and I mean, Natalie has the most beautiful way with words. She really does. So she engaged me immediately. And then her, her passion for wanting to learn to cook was just um, so very real. And she was not one of my early, she was my last apprentice before we closed. And having closed the pheasant farm, uh, I handed her over to Stephanie. So she started with me and, and I mean, she is... And then a, she fell in love with one of my senior cooks and, and married, married him. <laughs> so, you know, we're very connected. But, but her, she was a very shy young woman. She was so shy and, and cooking was her way of expression, uh, of, of sentiment, of love, of, of anger too. And um, now, the way she has grown and developed, she always had this cheeky sense of humour, but you didn't see it very often. But now it just explodes, mm. and her knowledge, 
Gosh, her knowledge didn't come from me. Um, didn't come from me. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, what I could share with her was instinct because she had that. Uh, but her knowledge about baking is just extreme, but it's really her warmth and her humour, and I just adore her. It's, yeah. it's the only time that we've had guests on the cook-up and the audio, I, I get in my little earpiece saying, do you think they're going to stop hugging each other at any point? <laughs> because it's really messing up the audio here. <laughs> And Stephanie, with, with Stephanie's, the restaurant, if you look at the alumni list of, of that, it is kind of a who's who of Australian food. I'm talking Yanni Karitsis, uh, Annie Smithers, Neil Perry, Natalie, obviously, Nikki Rima. So there, are, there aren't many restaurants in Australia that produce no. a crop of chefs that go on to change the way that we eat so dramatically. Well... The different, that's true, and I'm very proud of it, but there were very few restaurants. And so if you were an owner-chef in those far-off days, um, you were part of a very small number of people. And there was, any, there was hardly any food media, very little um, unsolicited uh, stuff in magazines or newspapers. And, of course, I started to write very early on um, so, therefore, your, your name is out there a bit. And so anyone who was genuinely interested in the, the ideas that I was talking about or something would tend to get in touch. So you started to know the people who were serious about food. You're not just wanting to... Oh, I don't know that anyone really was mad enough to think they were just going to make some money. But uh, <laughs> um, Never. you got to know the people who really cared and they met each other at different sorts of gatherings. And it was not uncommon for people to say, can I come and work for a month? And I know that was a very European... In fact, I did a stage in a very famous three-star restaurant in France, the same sort of thing. Of course you don't get paid. You don't expect to get paid. It's an absolute privilege, you know. They give you a bed and breakfast and... But you learn so much. Yeah. And I hope that the people who came feel that they learned something. Well, it, it almost ties a little bit back into the Kitchen Garden Foundation because you were telling me earlier about an email that you got from a, an Australian chef who had actually come through the kitchen at Stephanie's uh, as, as a, at a school Shannon trip. Shannon Bennett, yeah. Said, and I don't remember him coming, which is even worse. <laughs> <laughs> but he said he was 15. <laughs> <laughs> It's a writer's festival, so we should talk about the books that you have uh, currently, and they're, they're wonderful. Stephanie, this is... I'm going to get the number wrong, because it, it, at this point, does it even matter how many books you've written? Is this 19, number 19? It's either 18 or 19, depending on whether you count the revised Cook's Companion as a separate work. I do, because it took a year. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll read the back of the book, because I think this sums it up very well. My life's work has been to convince as many people as possible that cooking a lovely meal without anxiety adds so much to the joy of living. If you value sharing a meal with a special person or a large family, or maybe just cooking for yourself, you'll find ways to shape your day around selecting, preparing, and cooking something that will taste wonderful. Can you tell us a bit about the book and, and, and maybe a bit about how Stephanie Alexander cooks today? Well, it is arranged um, thematically. I'm trying to remember whether I've... Uh, yeah, I think I did. It's got favourite, favourite recipes in it, but it's also got some, uh, some recipes that have come from other people. I've always enjoyed showing the path that I've followed, so that if I've met somebody and they've introduced me to something, 
I like to acknowledge it rather mm. than, you know, loathe uh, passive plagiarism, which, as we know, is alive and well in the food industry. Um, but if you've actually discovered something or had it explained to you, it makes it just so much more meaningful. And I was saying to Adam that I've made a cake from that book for my daughter's birthday, which is tomorrow, and I knew I was going to be travelling, so I had to make a cake that was going to last about four days before I got to serve it. So in the book, there's a recipe for a um, spiced carrot cake, which had the spices come from Emiko's book, and, oh, and she yeah. says they're in, on sale in particular little old-fashioned grocers in Tuscany called drugs. So you, you, you go in and you buy a bag of drugs and um, take it home and you put it into your cake. And uh, I, I just love that idea. And I, you do? So I've got it in my spice drawer labelled drugs. <laughs> What's your cleaner thing? <laughs> And so I made the Tuscan carrot drug cake for Felice's birthday tomorrow. So I use it a lot myself, and it's got, it's got some beautiful recipes yeah. in it. And it was one of the first books that I've done that is heavily illustrated. Mm. And so that was another exi exciting thing for me, is working with a beautiful food stylist and appreciating their work. But it is... All recipes that I believe people can make very easily at home, um, covering you know the whole the whole thing: salads, fish, meat, and always with a little head note because I can't resist yes. talking a bit. So, <laughs> and I should say now that you know that uh, Stephanie started off as a librarian, it does have a bibliography. <laughs> <laughs> that does reference Emiko Davies' books oh, and Natalie it. Paul and also Maggie Beer. <laughs> Maggie, let's talk about your latest as well. I'm not even going to hazard a guess at what number book this is oh, for you. Not nearly as many as <laughs> Stephanie's, half, half the number. But it's, it's Maggie's Recipe for Life and it really does tie in because you've written it with Professor Ralph Martins, yes. um, who is, I believe, the head of the, the Alzheimer's Institute. Well, he's, he's or... probably Australia's foremost uh, Alzheimer's researchers. Um, who's been researching for 40 years and, and um, uh, was his idea that we do a book together that he would give me his science and I would put the food with it and it would be, um, it was done entirely to share between his foundation and my foundation. Um, so it's been a really lovely earner for the foundations, which has been terrific. But his science, the way he... Um, is able to explain it so readable and um, it's still with the same love of, of food but it was a very different I incarnation um, to anything else I'd written. Well, I think something like this becomes so topical and so important now because rather than doctors waiting until there's a problem and then trying to fix that problem, the entire shift of medicine yeah. and, and the way that we look at ageing has changed to trying to, to, to sort of cut it off at the source, essentially, live healthier lives for a longer period so that we don't have the problems that develop later in life. Absolutely. And, and there's, there's such a link between diabetes and dementia. And, and so this, this um, healthy living, and we live we've, we've both lived such healthy lives because we cook everything from scratch. And it's just been part of, our, part of my life. Um, I, let Stephanie speak for herself, but I know it is. Um, it's, 
It's food is medicine. Good mm. food is medicine, and um, and oh, I'm see. I've always resisted that phrase. Ah, uh, well, well. I mean, I, accept, I don't really yeah, use it so I know much what now you're saying, and I know it has yeah. therapeutic value, but I hate having food described as medicine. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> so, food I'm is edging joy. Away slightly here. Can I say food is joy? All right. Yes. And food is medicine <laughs> because if you eat well, you know. Uh, if you eat well, if you exercise, if you exercise your mind, if you're part of a community and interaction, you, you're going to have a, every chance of a good long life. Mm. And for me, if you are going to have a long life, it's got to be good all the way. Um, and I think um, food is so much part of that equation. Yes. We're going to I'll go. remember not to say it to you ever again. <laughs> well, I've just, you know, I had the reaction for the Kitchen Garden Foundation. My reaction has always been, I'm trying to make absolutely certain that we never say to children, you mustn't eat this. No fat, no sugar, no salt. Those are such negative, dreadful messages that would turn anyone away from changing behaviour. So that I, you know, when somebody says to me, and my friends say it to me. I'm amazed how often people say this to me, or to anyone. That's very good for you. And I say, I don't care whether it's good for me or not. It's delicious. <laughs> yeah. And of course, it always happens to be good for you as well. Yes. And, and that is what it is about. It's equal measures of, of pleasure and goodness. Um, that's what food, good food is. Mm. We're going to go to questions in a minute, but I did want to ask you, as two people who I believe there is no better people to ask this question, what do you think of the future of Australian food? Where are we going? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you can have that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We have to... Um, it is a... There is a percentage of people who are so passionate about food. Like about 2%. No, you're wrong. I'm not wrong. <laughs> no. I, I honestly feel it's about 10%. No. Uh, of people who, who understand the joy of food and love to cook. And, and what's at, the, where are you getting that statistic from? <laughs> my, own, my, own little, <laughs> my own little sort of counting. <laughs> but... Um, it has to be spread, and that, that is why. That's why the work Stephanie is doing. The, what you do with the children is our biggest hope. But we have a bigger thing, too, about food security, um, looking after our farmers. Uh, it, it is such a huge question, Adam. But I, I have a belief that um, more people will become interested in... Once you garden... Everything changes. If you can garden even just um, herbs on a, a, a balcony and put fresh herbs into your food at the last moment, that's your starting point. And may we all garden in some way. We, we just... Um, and you start the children with composting, don't you, with mm. the kitchen garden. Composting, garden, eating what you garden. But not everybody can do that no not everyone can but i can tell you just having fresh herbs on your mm. on your um uh, veranda and cutting some lemon thyme and putting it into a, a dish at the last moment they're the small things that we've got to know that make a difference so i think everyone can do that 
I recently spent quite a long time. We <laughs> <laughs> might come to blows. Well, let's, let's move to the rebuttal then, shall we? <laughs> Stephanie, what do you think about the future of Australia? <laughs> well, I think it's a great pity that the power of the food media, and I'm talking about both television, social media, newspapers, magazines, are seemingly obsessed with restaurants. Mm. Restaurants is not the critical thing in people's lives. There are many, many, many millions of Australians who are not in a position to go to restaurants and they still need to, we still want them to eat well. We still want to encourage them to shop well. We still want to encourage them, if they can, to grow the lemon thyme and snip it into their pasta. <laughs> but, but overwhelmingly, we've got a food situation where people are talking about restaurants. Mm. And there are a lot of other things to talk about, you know. So I think that's probably what's uppermost in my mind. Absolutely. We will have some time for questions now. I've got one coming from people who are streaming. Um, <laughs> Kelly from Orange is asking, who would you like to play you in the film adaptation? So I'll wait till I get that question in the room because then you can't ignore it. Um, <laughs> For Stephanie, what recipe should I try in my kitchen garden at school this winter? This is from Isabel, age 10, in Orange. Oh. <laughs> well, as we know, the one crop that you can't kill and that grows in every garden is silver beet. So I would say take some silver beet, chop it all up, cook it in a bit of olive oil with a little bit of garlic, and then decide whether you're going to roll it in some fresh pasta, some pastry, or just by, eat it by itself. Um, or add a potato, turn it into bubble and squeak of a different sort. Yeah, anything. Now, anyone can do that. <laughs> Let's take a question in the room here. If it's not maddening, um, I'd like to just observe that you are both national treasures. <laughs> um, I loved what different answers you gave to the question that Adam just asked you, and I was wondering... Um, who do you look around to at the moment and think is showing great leadership in, in terms of um, cooking, restauranting and just food industry? Oh, gosh. Well, Maggie, you've done all the judging of the specialty food section for a long time. Well, yes, I, I've been um, uh, for the last 15 years patron of the Delicious Produce Awards and um, can I tell you who I look to are the, the producers, the artisanal producers who are doing such amazing things, whether it's vegetables or whether it's um, taking mullet roe and, and drying it. They're, they're maximising um, the food of their, of their area and in the most exciting ways. To me, that is without a doubt uh, um, an I just want more and more and more of it. And it's building every year. Every year there's been such exciting um, developments and it might be a cheese. Um, uh, it might be someone with um, uni... Um, um, uh, Seochan Row that packages it from Tasmania. There's the, the hope for me. So it's coming from producers. Fabulous. Hello, my name's Tina Allen from Barrel, and I just wanted to say that before I came here, it was said that Maggie and Stephanie have left indelible marks on Australian families and the way we cook, and I just wanted to say that's so true for my family. 
Um, I was on part of a team at Berrimah Public School of parents and teachers that um, applied for and successfully gained a Stephanie Alexander kitchen. It was so special. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. Um, the Cook's Companion has just been such a special part of our family's life and I think that it is gener it's encouraging generations mm -hmm. to go to a book, find the apple crumble topping for the fresh apples that we've just picked from the garden, the lemon cordial from our own lemons, whatever it is, or from the market, it doesn't matter. So thank you so much, Stephanie. Maggie, I just am so inspired by this book. Um, we bought it a couple of years ago. You signed it this morning. So I now have a signed copy from both of you. Um, my question is, Maggie's comment, we could take some fresh ingredients and make them into a dish. And that's the core and the essence of living well and joyously. But so many people don't know how to do that. They don't have the skill. How can we reach all kinds of families from all demographics and tell them that maybe a pasta sauce only needs four yeah. fresh ingredients and we don't need to buy frozen yeah. lasagna. Gosh, <laughs> give me a hard one, will you? Um, well, you can talk about that for about three weeks. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I believe that the kitchen garden program yeah. is, it will achieve a tiny bit of that by yes. the children going home and saying to mum and dad, we had a beautiful salad of fennel today and mother yeah. says... What's fennel? <laughs> or they go to a market and the kid says, we made a salad with that strange looking thing this week in school and mother doesn't know what it is, but the kid says, and she says, well, let's buy one and you can show me at home. That's, that's I know that's a minute little example. Um, I'm absolutely in agreement that a vast number of people yeah. in this country are so, upset, are so anxious that they don't cook. Yes. that they just go for convenience mm. and they think genuinely that they're saving money and saving time by buying boxes, jars, frozen. And it's so sad because we know that just with a little bit of more knowledge, and it yes. is knowledge, mm. um, they, could, they, could do, they could achieve something so much more delicious and they would not be spending more money. And to follow on from that, um, the thing I love to do is to share how I love to cook with such simple ingredients and make something fresh and beautiful. And when lockdown happened and I did a whole pile of videos um, with my assistant on the other side of the kitchen with a phone, and what I tried to do was do things that were so simple. Remember when flour white flour wasn't available, so I would use um, spelt. I did such easy things for people um, to just do in their kitchens themselves without worrying about it because it was just this, this and this, and here you've got something beautiful. Um, I'm, I, I don't know how to continue that on, and I don't actually have time in life to do it, but it's if we can share the ways of getting a really simple dish on the plate, then um, uh, I'd like to see more of that and not just restaurant food. Can I just Stephanie say one said. other thing about that, that the Victorian government and the Commonwealth actually yeah. funded a thing which, which the Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden Foundation is, is doing 
called Healthy Kids Advisors, and oh, that's yes. just we've employed mm. people. They're not they had have no specialist vocational education, which has made it easier for us to find these people. And their task is to go into areas which are um, low low socioeconomic areas throughout Victoria, like Mildura, like the Otways, like the Grampians and move in the community, usually probably based at the local government offices, and try to influence the way food is used, either at a sporting club or at a swimming pool or at a, a footy kit training or just showing different ways that you can do these things in a way that's more wholesome and hopefully at least as delicious as the hot salty chips. And so those sort of things, community-based activities can help, but it's a very, very big thing. Thank you. We probably have time for one more quick question. I will say that we had a question from Wagga Wagga Library that was along the same lines as that, so Caroline, because this is being live-streamed around the state, so uh, I hope, Caroline, that, that answered your question as well. My question goes to the other end of life, but just before I get to that, um, to go on from your... My daughter... Um, found great gnocchi at the local farmers markets, but this week she decided, I'm going to try and make some gnocchi. And she was making it and she succeeded, but she said, Mum, what's a potato ricer? <laughs> 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 well, it might be her birthday present in a month's time. <laughs> anyway, the other end of life. Um, so hopefully it's quite a few years till I need aged care, but what do you, Maggie, see that I might be eating in 30-ish years, hopefully, oh. <laughs> or, or more, in, well, in um, a facility? Can I tell you I'm more interested in what's happening now and let that grow from there? And, and what I want is, is to have real food um, that is cooked with a lot of knowledge and, and, and love for food and the people that they're looking after. And so for me, it's um, a, a program where um, I'm training the chefs to go into the homes for a week uh, to actually work with the team, to bring them together and give them, give them the tools that they need because they haven't been respected. They haven't been, they've paid so little. They have um, uh, often... Our, the budgets are, are really terrible, but we can change it and we can change it. So I want to change now for the people that are there in aged care that don't have good food and let it be let it be a journey that just gets better and better. So by the time you're in there, um, you'll be right. Thank you. <laughs> <clears throat> well, thank you, everyone. Uh, uh, and that just brings us to the end. So National Treasures... Wonderful women, inspiring and lifelong friends. Maggie Beer and Stephanie Alexander. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.